Good afternoon. Well, nearly. Yeah, nearly. Okay. You'll be glad to see. I'm going to turn over a few pages. <laughs> Skip a bit. It's lovely to be with you, and I have really enjoyed all the participation from all the different voices today. It's such an encouragement. And so often in my life, in church life, um, I'm just in meetings with men. Um, you've no idea how uncommon it is to, to participate with lots of other women. So that's been a real lift for me, uh, not to be the only one. Have you ever felt like a complete outsider? Put up your hand if you felt, ever felt like a complete outsider. Is there anyone here that has never felt like an outsider? Okay, that's all right. I bet you're not the only one. I think it's really important, so I'm going to have lunch with you afterwards and find out what the gospel means to you. (laughs) But um, it's really important that we know what it is to feel like an outsider because it does illuminate our understanding of the gospel. You know, I was brought up to read Esther, and Esther was sort of put on a pedestal for us. But I was never taught to question, really, what had happened to Vashti. She was treated like a non-person. And even the text says everyone was invited to the party. This is God's word, we said. But it says everyone was invited to the party. And everyone was only men. It wasn't slaves. It wasn't children. It wasn't women. Now, I think the text does that to draw us into the story, not to perpetuate the oppression and exclusion. But we need to learn to listen to our scriptures and to listen to our culture and hear where is the exclusion. Maybe you feel excluded because you haven't seen Derry Girls yet. I certainly did because I missed the first series, but I had to watch it and catch up this week. It was great fun, but a little shocking at times. Um, When you don't fit into what everyone is doing, what everyone knows, what everyone thinks, it's very quick. You can very quickly feel like an outsider and you can be excluded because it's hard to raise your voice when you're different. It's hard to be heard even if you do raise your voice. It's hard to be understood. So, this ancient text, which tells our human story, where Xerxes is keen to show off his immense wealth and he gives an enormous banquet. Wouldn't you love to have been there? The drink flowed freely. You've got no responsibilities, you're not driving, you're going to have fun. Which is all right, unless you happen to be the only woman in the room when all these men had had too much to drink. I dread to think what the state was that Vashti was summoned to attend. Everyone from the highest to the lowest, except the women. So Vashti organized a party for the women was quite constructive. Okay, they're having a party. We're not invited. We'll have a party of our own. I thought that was quite a good idea. But she is then horrified to be summoned 
Not to give a piece of advice, not to give an opinion, not to help people understand an important matter of state from the perspective of the women whose views she might understand better than than they did. She was brought in, or to be brought in, to be shown off like a Lamborghini or a Jaguar. Other brands of car are available. When is a person not a person? When they're reduced to a label. When they're objectified, when they're dehumanized, when they're treated like property rather than dignified with respect as individuals who have important understandings and feelings and choices and responsibilities in their own right. So, Fitzroy, children of God, when do we treat others as cogs in a machine rather than real human beings? Rather than people who may show us the face of God? Rather than people who may open our eyes to the marginalization that's going on in our own church, in our own culture? and in the world. Simone de Beauvoir wrote that representation of the world, like the world itself, is the work of men. And they describe it from their own point of view, and then they confuse that with the absolute truth. There's a fair amount of theology that does that too. But I'd like to apply the principle more broadly, because it's not just about men and women, as has already been said. Representation of the world, like the world itself, is the work of those who have a voice, those who have power. And they describe the world from their own point of view, and they confuse that with absolute truth. You've heard it said here many times, God is not a Protestant or a Catholic, or white, or Jewish, or conservative, or male. God is more than, and we need the other in order to see the truth of the face of God. So what starts out as Xerxes objectifying his wife, putting her on a pedestal, I'm sure he thought he was doing her a great honour by showing her off, and at the same time dehumanising her, then turns to the oppression of all women, subjecting them en bloc to legal submission to their husbands. So they have no say in what happens to them. One woman's stand against dehumanization was taken as a cause for general panic. I think that first chapter is actually quite funny. In fact, I think the whole book of Esther is quite funny. And there's a lot we can't say today, so I encourage you to read the book of Esther before bedtime tonight. Maybe you can have a bit of a discussion over lunch about all the things I haven't said um, and about what I have said. One woman's stand is taken as a cause of general panic. And all the women are taken not as individuals, but as a class of people to be kept subject to those in power. It's almost comic if it weren't so true to life. Once we treat people as less than human, we get terrified when they stand and say, that doesn't suit me, that isn't the whole truth. I have the right to say something else or do something else. 
And it's only a small step from there to the genocide that happens in the rest of the book of Esther, the genocide planned by Haman in subsequent chapters. How can this pattern of dehumanizing people, which starts small and leads to destruction of whole peoples, how can it be stopped? In this book, in this story, God raises up another woman, a girl perhaps, Esther, for such a time as this. And it's through her, her courage to take her life in her hands and to seek justice for her people. Through the prayerful support of her uncle and her people, that the oppression and slaughter of the Jews is prevented. Let's bear this in mind because the times that we're living in could very easily turn this direction. Popularization, populist politics could very easily turn us to a quick categorizations of people that will be very destructive. But in my evangelical upbringing, I was never taught that it was the role of women to stop genocides or that it was the role of men to include and value women rather than perpetuating the culture of demeaning and diminishing them. Did I miss something? Why was it that, why was it that when I went and studied law at Queen's just round the corner here, it didn't occur to me that the purpose of studying law wasn't just to do justice in small places, but to help the poor, set the oppressed free. Why did I think that human rights was a subject that only nationalists needed to study? Why did I not think that our Presbyterian tradition had contributed significantly to the foundations of international protection of human beings? Had we as Irish Presbyterians, got too much to lose? Had we got power that meant that it was easier to read scripture with lenses on that treated women and Catholics or nationalists or any other sort of outsider as categories rather than people made in God's image? In the mid-late 80s and through the 90s, some evangelicals started to read scripture in ways that challenged distrust of our Catholic neighbours. And this church was key to that. Esther is just one person. And she's no less objectified than Vashti. She doesn't have power as such, but she has a chance, a slim chance of having a voice. It might cost her her life, and yet she takes the limited opportunity that she has in a system that's stacked against her. And through her intervention, she does the impossible. She changes the unchangeable, the law of the Medes and Persians. And she saves lives. Fitzroy has done that too. We may be called to do it again. Meanwhile, another woman, Vashti, was forgotten, marginalized, banished. Vashti, who had invited the excluded to join her in a party of their own. Vashti, who insisted on her own personhood and refused to be objectified by her husband. Vashti, who unwittingly paved the way for Esther. 
And yet Vashti may have seen Esther as an upstart, an intruder, the other woman. There was nothing either she or Esther were able to do about that. Empires divide to rule. They set people against each other. In this case, women would be set against each other, made to be in conflict and competition with each other under the dominant narrative of male supremacy. Some of you, women and men, have paved the way for others of us to have a voice. You may even resent some of us who come after you for the freedoms that we have taken for granted, for the recognition which you didn't get. But in light of the roles of both Vashti and Esther today, we want to say thank you. Some of you have cherished women's voices, encouraged us, believed that our perspective was important and listened just like Jesus listened and talked with women until we dared to listen to ourselves. Thank you. Some of you have, like me, been slow to learn, slow to speak up, slow to make use of our opportunities, slow even to see the injustices. But here we are today, and we have a choice today. How shall we go forward? Rather than believing ourselves to be the only victims, to be only victims of a system, victims of Brexit, victims of political intransigence, of foolish polarization, let's dare to believe that God has designed and made and called each of us for such a time as this. The Bible has lots more to say. Our reading from Psalm 131 offers another way to see a woman as a picture of God, the mother who gives safety and nurture, confidence and freedom to her child. Like Vashti, this woman has fed and nurtured others who were marginalized and dehumanized. But it's not all raging activists campaigning at every turn for rights. Our life, our relationships with others reflect the relationship we have with God, the heavenly parent, the mother and father from whom we come, in whom we rest, in whose presence we live, move and have our being. I have stilled my soul like a well-fed child. Our first experience of women was that of a body beyond ourselves in whom we lived, whose sole purpose, it seemed, was to meet our needs. And as we grow, we need to get beyond that. For the deeper truth is that we matter, not simply as bodies who meet each other's needs, men and women, but because God loves us, made us in God's image, to reflect God's image together, and gifts us with abilities and a mysterious capacity for relationship that meets not just physical needs, but relational, social, spiritual, 
psychological, emotional needs. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. This God who speaks with us, calling us to life, to relationship, speaking to our hearts. This is our truest food. Jesus surprises and shocks his disciples because he takes time to speak with women as people rather than as categories. The Apostle Paul wrestles with it, with the roles of men and women, 1 Corinthians 11, which we'll be referring to in a moment in relation to our communion. Starts that chapter wrestling with different roles of men and women in the church, acknowledging that Eve was made from Adam and woman is therefore under man's authority, he thinks. Women's, Paul's literal understanding of the creation narrative leads him to reinforce his cultural prejudices. But then, even in that chapter, he takes it a step further. And here we make our transition from sermon to communion. Because Paul says, remember that in God's plan, men and women need each other. For although the first woman came out of man, all men have been born from women ever since. And both men and women come from God, their creator. He goes on to talk about a woman having to have her head covered when she's prophesying or praying in church. For those of you wondering whether there's anything in the idea that there are separate roles prescribed for males and females, there's a theological cul-de-sac called complementarianism, which is based on the false view of humanity and a false view of Trinity. Notice that this passage is never used by complementarians to suggest that Paul thinks it's entirely normal for women to prophesy and teach and preach and pray in public. It's called confirmation bias. We hear in the text what we want to hear and we miss the information we don't want to notice. So you'll notice I'm not wearing a head covering today. I can do it, look. I'm sure it will add to your experience greatly. Our culture doesn't need this. Paul's culture did. There are cultures where if a woman doesn't have her head covered, she's understood to be a prostitute. So in Paul's time, there were maybe good reasons why a woman had to have her head covered so as not to confuse people, so they could hear what she had to say. Whereas if I put my scarf on, you can't hear me because you're wondering why I'm wearing a silly headscarf. But then Paul moves from there to redress the balance between men and women. And then, to talk about communion, whenever you come together to eat, it isn't the Lord's Supper you're eating, but your own, because some of you are eating it all up and dishonoring the poor people who can't get here on time, shaming them because they arrive too late and they can bring no food. Paul sees that the poor as well as the rich are included in the body of Christ. 
just as the women and the men, the slaves and the free are included equally in Christ with Gentiles and Jews. Paul scolded the Corinthian church for eating and drinking without waiting for the poor, the marginal, leaving nothing for the slaves who couldn't come till their duties were done elsewhere. And he says, whoever eats this bread and drinks from the cup unworthily, not discerning the body of Christ, is eating and drinking judgment on themselves. The body of Christ is not just the bread. Across our world, because of their bodies, women and girls are beaten, raped, killed, enslaved, consigned to drudgery or torture. Because of their bodies, women are denied education. Because of their bodies, girl children are sold rather than cherished or protected. Because of their bodies, widows have their children and land taken from them. (coughs) Women are torn away from their family and deprived of their inheritance and the means to provide for themselves and their children. Because of their bodies. Whoever eats the bread and drinks from the cup, not thinking about the body of Christ and what it means, is eating and drinking God's judgment on himself. This is the table of Jesus Christ. It's not restricted to Presbyterians or Protestants. It's not restricted to any form of us or them. Because Jesus invites you. Please don't exclude yourself. He invites us all to receive him and to receive each other in his name. To recognize his body given for us. Come receive the gift of his body broken for you. His blood shed for you. The eternal love poured out to you as members of his risen body.